So, handouts are on the back. If you don't have that, feel free to, to grab it. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a man? So when we look at pop culture, we might see men hallowed as macho cowboys with callous hands and a five o'clock shadow. That's kind of my, my favorite. Uh, in the media, we've seen, we've seen um, men in public leadership brag about their promiscuity or flaunt their flawed ego. And you've probably heard stories about 35-year-old dudes spending their life eating ramen noodles and playing video games in their mom's basement. So, uh, I mean, all the options are there, right? Depending on the source of defining what a man is, we all carry around ideas of masculinity that need to be evaluated in light of Scripture. So let's just turn to the teachings of Scripture to see what God says about true masculinity. So let's begin by opening up God's Word to Genesis 1, 26-27. We, we've spent a lot of time in this text, and we're going to continue to spend a lot of time in Genesis because it, it is foundational to our understanding of anthropology, big word, the study of man. And the study of man is not simply man, but man is male and female. Anthropology, Genesis, first three chapters, very significant in our understanding of man. So let's just open up to Genesis 1, 26 and 27 and just review what we saw a little bit from last week. God's word says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every living, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Bible begins by stating that men and women are equally made in the image of God. They share equal value, worth, dignity, importance. There is no superiority, no inferiority. Yeah, while they possess an equality of essence, from Genesis 2 we saw significant distinctions between the first man and first woman and the inclinations that they would have towards fulfilling God's creation mandate. These inclinations were reinforced in Genesis 3 as God outlined different consequences of sin for the woman and for the man. And we stated that the distinctions between men and women and the roles that they play in the home and in the church aren't the sinful result of the fall. And they're not obliterated in the redemption we saw that Christ accomplished in Galatians 3 and Ephesians 5 and other New Testament texts. Men and women are designed by God to complement each other with distinct dispositions and beautiful roles to play according to his design. From Genesis 1, this is all review. So from Genesis 1 and 2, we also saw that gender was given to us by God. It is his gift. Gender, therefore, is real. It's good. It's defined by God. Being male or female is part of one's essence. I know this flies increasingly against the cultural winds, which say that gender is merely a social construct, right? An idea or perception of gender that the world or society around us has defined with no necessary 
connection to our physical sex. That is what's being put forth, right? The gender is a social construct, and it kind of just depends upon your own inclinations, your own feelings, your own determination. You determine whether you're male or female, and that's divorced from your physical, biological sex. Everybody's, everybody's picking that up, right, that that's what's going on in the culture, right? This is the universal sign for yes. I know it's Sunday evening, but it's okay. All right, yeah, so this is yes. So, but the Bible absolutely 100% disagrees with that. Gender is a construct. It's a divine construct. Gender is a construct. It's a divine construct, and thus a beautiful part of God's wise and glorious and awesome plan. Yes, there are certain cultural expressions of maleness and femaleness, but that doesn't mean that gender is only cultural. That's why I'm using the term gender to refer both to our physical sex and how we behave socially as men and women. So men and women share a common humanity, equal in value, but we are not identical. To be clear, we shouldn't be surprised that our sinful fallen human hearts may struggle to see the appropriateness and goodness of God's design. And it's certainly possible in a fallen world for some people to feel confused or uncomfortable with their gender, but such discomfort does not prove the gender itself is fluid. So just a public service announcement. If you weren't here for last week's course seminar on gender, I would strongly encourage you to check out the notes on the website and the audio on the website, and listen to that, um, because you're not going to hear it anywhere else. Um, and it's just a very, it's essentially a biblical theology of gender. And so I just encourage you to check that out if you haven't. Now, what we're going to see in our course is that the relationship between men and women is not meant to be a parade, right? What's a parade? Well, it would be one in front of the other and one behind the other. Nor is the relationship between men and women supposed to be a race with trying to elbow past one another. It is more like a dance. Two genders in this dance have differing steps, differing dispositions, yet together they move as one, they move in perfect harmony, they need each other, and their differences are part of the beauty of the dance. So today we want to ask, what is distinct about the male partner in this dance? Between men and women. Okay, so let me just give you four opening considerations as we begin. All right, four opening considerations. Number one, we should distinguish manhood from boyhood. We should distinguish manhood from boyhood. Biblically speaking, while it is fruitful to discern the difference between men and women, when it comes to how men should live, the emphasis isn't exactly so much be masculine instead of be feminine. The Bible basically just assumes that. Rather, the Bible seems to put more stress on be like a man instead of like a boy. So the book of Proverbs warn us against men. I'm sorry, they warn, they warn us men. The book of Proverbs warms, uh, warns. I'm going to have a sip of coffee, and I'm just going to restart the whole sentence. All right. The book of Proverbs warns us men against the folly of youthful thinking and living. There are certain vices, while common to all humanity, seen especially endemic to young men. And biblical masculinity is especially seen 
in young men growing into maturity, embracing more responsibility and holiness and the desire to protect and provide and cultivate. So number one, we should see we should distinguish manhood from boyhood. That's number one. Number two, li- to live as a godly man. Four opening considerations is what we're talking about here. No- number two, to live as a godly man. On one level, simply seek godliness. So when it comes to our Christian discipleship, there is a ton of overlap for men and women. We are both heirs in Christ. The New Testament only occasionally gives the two genders different instructions. Generally, we're all to take up our cross and follow Jesus. So if you are here today and you want to grow as a Christian man or a Christian woman for that matter, you have the whole Bible at your disposal, okay? (laughs) Very few are quarantined off for one gender or the other. It's really there for everybody calling you to grow in godliness, whether you're a man or a woman. So pray that the Holy Spirit would grow the fruit of the Spirit in you, as we see in Galatians 5, that you'd grow in such virtues such as love, peace, gentleness, kindness, and self-control. Number three. This class, though, is focused on the very specific question of what tends to be distinctive about being a godly man in particular. And while much of Christian discipleship is the same as men for women, not all of it is. As a man, you are always going to express the fruit of the Spirit as a man, not as some generic, genderless person. So our hope is to describe what our family resemblances of dispositions that all men tend to have in common according to God's created design. Four, but whenever we study God's creation design, we need to remember that creation has fallen. This means some men will exhibit these tendencies more than others. Others may find these tendencies to feel less natural to them, and the fall has certainly made it difficult to perceive God's design sometimes. The question is simply this, seek to live, or the goal, not the question, sorry. The goal is simply this, seek to live with the grain of the gender God has made you to be. Seek to live within the grain of the gender that God has made you to be. Any questions just so far? Kind of just getting started, getting the coffee warmed up. Any questions so far? Okay, let's just keep crack-a-lacking. Foundations for biblical masculinity. So with all this in mind, let's just turn to page 2 on your handout. Let's look again at Genesis 2. We're going to focus on the account of creation and fall in Genesis today because it is so foundational for seeing God's original design for men and women. When we turn to the New Testament, Jesus and Paul quote and allude to Genesis 1 through 3, showing, this is huge, showing that these chapters continue to be both relevant and authoritative. They are not merely a cultural construct or something um, be after the fall. Okay, Jesus and Paul reference these as as authoritative and relevant for today. So let's look at the first at a scattering of verses that show Adam's connection to the ground. 
You can grab your Bibles there if you've got it with you, or you can just follow along in the notes. We have the Bibles underneath the pews now if you want to grab those. Genesis 2.5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Literally, there was no Adam, man, to work the Adama ground. It's as if the existence of uncultivated ground calls out for someone to bring order out of that chaos, just as God himself did in Genesis 1-2 when the earth was formless and void. Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So he forms Adam from the dust of the Adama, okay? Genesis 2.9, and out of the ground, Adama, the Lord God made to spring up every tree. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Verse 19, out of the ground, Adama, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. End quote. So here we see Adam made from the ground exercising dominion over the species that were also made from the ground by naming them. There are echoes here of God's exercising dominion by naming parts of the creation in chapter 1. Recall, part of God's mandate for man and woman in Genesis 1 was to have dominion over all the animals and it seems that the man by virtue of being created first and by being created from the ground like the other things, has a distinctive tendency to bring order and dominion to God's creation. So it, it seems as though men are distinctively have a tendency have a distinctive tendency to bring order and dominion to God's creation. Now please hear me, it's not that women don't exercise dominion. They do. But the man is doing it before the woman comes on the scene. And as we'll see in future weeks, she isn't created from the ground, but from man. Just as he seems to be distinctively oriented to working the ground, she seems distinctively oriented towards the man. In other words, her special concern is the well-being of her husband and by extension, her family. So he seems to be more focused on cultivating the ground, she seems to be more focused on and oriented towards him and by extension the family. Fast forward to Genesis 3, 17 through 19, where we see that the ground, the Adama, is cursed because of Adam's sin. Quote, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. End quote. The fact that working the ground is cursed. The fact that working the ground is cursed suggests that working the ground is a key puzzle piece of masculinity. Does that make sense? Okay? 
The fact that working the ground is cursed, that's Adam's curse. The fact that working the ground is cursed suggests that working the ground is a key puzzle piece of masculinity. Okay? You still with me? Is the universal sign of yes? Okay, all right. That leads us to a related uh, point, another puzzle piece. Look again at Genesis 2.15. Look at Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden. For what purpose? To work and keep it. That word work also means serve or labor or cultivate. That word work means serve or labor or cultivate. That's man's role both in the garden and after the fall too. If you look at 323, it says, quote, The Lord sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Now the point isn't so much the ground as it is the working the point is not so much the ground as it is the working. As the Bible unfolds, we are going to see that not all men are called to be farmers. Okay? Praise God, I would be a terrible man. Okay? I can hardly fix I, just very few things. Uh, it's an opportunity for humility. Any time I try to fix anything. So, uh, not all men are called to be farmers. Rather, the point seems to be that men are wired to represent God's dominion through the work God calls them to do. For Adam... The garden was the world. It was the realm where Adam was called to live out his God-given responsibilities. So, men, an implication of this is that we are called to work in whatever garden God has given to us. So, to invest our time, our energies, our ideas in bringing good things into being so that we can provide for ourselves and be generous to others. A faithful man is one who has devoted himself to cultivating, building, and growing. So using your work to work the, to make the world a more orderly place. And that would be true whether you're a carpenter, a mechanic, an engineer, a plumber, a waiter, or whatever. Okay? Using your work to make the world a more orderly place. That's true regardless of your profession. And please note this. You, you really got to note this. Men, we cultivate not just jobs and tasks, but people too. We cultivate not just jobs and tasks, but we cultivate people too. Think about Ephesians chapter 5, where husbands are called to nourish their wives. Or Ephesians 6, where fathers are called to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. A man's fingers, brothers, a man's fingers should be accustomed to working the soil of the human heart. Right? Not just the soil of the ground. A man's fingers should become accustomed to working the soil of the human heart. Richard Phillips says it well. He says, quote, This biblical mandate to work... Here, the, with the emphasis on cultivating and tending, explodes a great misconception regarding gender roles. We have been taught that women are the main nurturers, while men are, quote, strong and silent. But the Bible calls men to be cultivators, and that includes a significant emphasis on tending the hearts of those given to our charge, such as our wives, our children, fellow church members, friends, employees, colleagues, relatives, the list could go on. That's a very insightful quote and a very good word for us men. 
So sometimes we're just distant because we're like, yeah, I'm just a strong and silent type. She has more to say. I have less to say. God's calling you to cultivate the people who are in your lives, in your sphere of responsibility. He's calling you to cultivate the soil of their heart and pour into them and help them mature. Uh, Bring them to Christ. Help them mature in Christ. He's calling you to do that, men. Now, again, we are not saying that men are called to work and women aren't. We are just noticing that even in the fabric of how God created the first man and the first woman, the man seems to have a distinct inclination toward tending God's creation. And the other half of Adam's calling is found in that second verb, to watch over. That would be the Christian Standard Bible. NIV would say, take care of. ESV would say, keep. That's the second role, second part of his role is to, to watch over, to take care of, or to keep. The word is used of soldiers, it's used of shepherds, it's used of priests, it's even used of God himself. The Hebrew word often implies protection. And when used of God, it describes how the Lord guards his people to keep them safe. So what we see is that man is to wield, okay, man is to wield both the plow of provision and the sword of protection. That's what men are supposed to do. We are supposed to wield the plow of provision and the sword of protection. As God's representative in the garden, Adam was not only to make it fruitful, but he was to keep it safe. And when Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, in 324, the Lord assigns an angel to guard the same word, the tree of life, since Adam had failed to do that job, Genesis 3.24. Men are created, it seems, with an inclination to risk their well-being for the sake of others, to keep safe, to preserve, to stand up for, to watch over like a good shepherd. Okay? Men just have this inclination, or they should. Okay? If something does go bump in the night, brothers, it better not be your wives that get up. You know, it's got to be. It's got to be. It just does. Well, she's stronger than me. No, you need to get up, okay? Um, All right. So I hope that what you're seeing so far is that the Bible's vision for manhood is distinct from kind of just macho cliches in our culture and even some Christian manhood manuals. Sadly, some Christian authors have just taught that men need to get outside of the humdrum. You know, they need to get outside of boring everyday life in order to find that they're truly wild at heart. Um, You can tell I'm not... I'm not a fan of that because uh, I don't think it's right. I don't think it's good. God doesn't promise you exciting, fantastic manhood adventures. He just tells you to protect and provide and cultivate. And that takes a lot of work, and it's not always exciting. I don't want to be a man half the time. I'm like, I don't want to be a leader. I just want to be normal. Uh, you know, I don't want to be the one in charge of my home. This is a lot of work. Uh, but I am. I'm a man. And if you're a man, you have the same calling. And we have, to, we have to take up that calling. So what we see in Genesis 2-3 is that masculinity isn't primarily about big bottle, big battles and, and big adventures. And uh, yeah, it's primarily about tending whatever garden God has given us, providing for others' needs, and protecting them with sacrificial love. So you can do that whether you're a hunter, a hunter, bang, bang, a hunter or a kindergarten teacher, whether you build canoes with your bare hands, or whether you write poetry in your spare time, okay? You, you can do all those things regardless of those, those inclinations and those, those bents that you may have. 
Any questions so far? Just take a take a quick pause. You guys got to give me some questions tonight. You can't just let me be up here all alone. Nothing so far? Okay, yes? Yes, what's your name? You seem very nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope I say the right answer. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think how you can be masculine as a married man, as, as somebody who is not married, is one, be holy, be focused on growing in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Two, be faithful in the responsibilities and roles that God has given you. If you don't have a job, you need to get a job, and you need to do the best darn job, you, best darn job at that job that you can do. Okay. And number three, you need to invest yourself in the life of the church that you're a part of. And you need to serve and care for both the brothers and sisters, men and women, in that church. And that's part of cultivating. So be holy, love Jesus Christ, be faithful in the realms that God's given you, get a job and work hard. Um, and that may look like get an education so that you can have a job. Either one, that's faithful, that's fine. Number three, be involved in the local church and cultivate the souls of the brothers and sisters that you're involved in. That's how you can be a that's how you should take steps to be a biblical man apart from being married. In broad categories. Oh yeah. Yeah, Missy said they could just be protected generally protective over women, absolutely. And over anybody. So if you see somebody getting beat up on the playground or something, you know, do something about it. Other questions, Missy? I okay. Yeah. The basic the basic point is Adam and uh, uh, Adam and ground are like almost lexically in uh, language-wise, very, very uh, together and tied. So Adam is man, and Adama is ground. And Adam came from the ground, and Adam is to tend the ground. There's essentially a strong connection between Adam and the ground and tending the ground. That was the point, essentially. That his role is to be a tender a, a, a carer for, a cultivator of, uh, one who brings order to God's dominion. That's the slightly expanded point. Yes, there was certainly order. God had formed and filled uh, the earth over the course of six days, three days forming, three days filling in, gen in a general sense. But then there was much work to be done, and he gave Adam the primary responsibility to do that. 
Good. Other questions? Thanks for not leaving me high and dry there. That encourages me. I have a question. Like nope, not to Abby. Any others? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> In being, uh, in being a man? I think you can encourage them anytime you see them taking initiative to, because what is, so, so a man is geared to be, should be, the leader in his household and leader in the church. So anytime you see uh, a young man taking initiative in any sphere of relationship, you should encourage that because it encourages the God-given design to lead and care and serve and protect and provide. I would say also you should avoid making fun of men. Uh, so to just, you know, say things like, well, they're, you know, they're a lot farther along dragging their knuckles along the ground, isn't it? You know, well, it's good. Uh, you know, so just avoid mocking men for sometimes they're just, their ways, right? But just to, to, to relate to them in a, in a respectful way and encourage them that God would have them to be uh, godly uh, leaders uh, in every sphere and that you're and encourage them and the things that you see them doing that are good and godly and uh, and helpful to others. I think that's a great way where you can just encourage biblical manhood as a woman. Okay, let's keep going and we'll we'll, we'll have time for more. This is exciting. Where am I? I need to know. Uh, okay, so let's let's turn to what I'm going to call a pattern of responsibility. Again, let's just consider some of what we've seen in Genesis 2 and 3. First, uh, note that God formed a man first, and then he made the woman. In 2 Timothy 2.13, Paul teaches that being made first signifies Adam's authority, and he's alluding to a common notion in biblical teaching uh, that being the firstborn implies authority. So Israel would be called the firstborn son, reflecting that the nation's responsibility and authority to image God before the other nations is placed in her. Jesus is called the firstborn over all creation, referring to his position of authority. Sometimes, by the way, that can trip people up in regards to Jesus' divinity. They're like, well, he says he's a firstborn, so surely that means that he wasn't in existence at some point. If he's the firstborn, that means at some point he wasn't born, so therefore he must not be God. And it's like, no, 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 we have to understand what that's meaning in context. Uh, it doesn't mean that at all. Um, it's referring to his position of authority, his exaltation. He is God's son to whom is given all glory and honor and dominion. It has nothing to do with his eternality. Okay. That was free. You get all sorts of stuff when you come here. Number two. Second, note 2.18, quote, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Then note 2.23, The man is the one who names his wife, calling her woman. She too is divinely created, in no way inferior to the man, yet she is distinct, made to be his, quote, helper. So his authority is subtly apparent in the naming of her. But her value and significance is evident in the fact that in verse 24, it's a man who leaves his parents and clings to his wife. So she is the relational center of the family unit. 
That's number two. Number three, note what we learn about Adam's responsibility when temptation enters the picture. So look at Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any of the tree of any sorry, eat of any tree in the garden? Ask yourself this question why did the serpent Satan come first to Eve? He came first to Eve because it was a direct threat to Adam's authority. Satan aimed right at the heart of what it meant for God to make Adam the leader of their marriage and Eve his helper. So instead of man submitting himself to God, the woman accepting the man's leadership and both having authority over creation, here the woman listens to the creature, the man listens to the woman, and neither of them are listening to God. Satan sought to deceive Eve because he knew that in undermining Adam's leadership, he would undo the good that God intended for them. Fourth, look at what happens in Genesis 3, 8, and 9. After they've sinned and hidden themselves from God, quote, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Note that God calls out the man first, even though it was the woman who first ate the fruit. Why? Because Adam holds unique responsibility for their mutual well-being. He had abandoned his post as a leader in their marriage, so when God called Adam to account, he was reasserting the original created order okay five and note also the death sentence in genesis three nineteen. for all humanity is directed um note the death sentence in genesis three nineteen for all humanity it's directed at the man <laughs> it is because of you god says to adam in, in genesis three seventeen. not you and your wife but you, Adam, that the creation is cursed. Adam functions as the head of all humanity. Eve will give an account, yes, but Adam bears the final responsibility because he represents the entire human race. And Paul teaches that, us that explicitly in Romans 5, that because of Adam's sin, all of us are accounted as guilty. In fact, uh, in in, in, in the Puritans would teach their kiddos the ABC, ABCs using these little, um, I don't know what you would call them. Somebody help me. Some educator help me with the phrasing. Rhymes or mnemonic devices or, or so. So A was in Adam's fall, we send all. That was A. Uh, that's a good way to learn A. In Adam's fall, we send all. Romans 5 teaches that he represents the entire human race. So when he fell, we fell. When he sinned, we sinned. He represented us. And all that we're noting here, all that we're noting here is that God ordained the first, uh, all that we're noting here is that God ordained that it is through the first man that our sinful nature comes. And it is Jesus, the second Adam, a man, who brings our salvation. In other words, it seems that responsibility 
and even authority, while part of the image of God in men and women generally, are especially associated with manhood. So I'm going to say that again. It seems that responsibility and even authority, while part of the image of God in both men and women generally, are especially associated with manhood. We should expect men to be wired to feel a sense of responsibility for the well-being of others. We should expect that. Men should be, they should feel, men, we should feel wired to feel a sense of responsibility for the well-being of others. Now, be clear, just because Adam has a role of authority here doesn't mean, be clear on this too, this is important. Just because Adam has a role of responsibility or authority, authority, it doesn't mean that all men have authority over all women. We must remember that for Adam, the Garden of Eden was a place of covenantal relationships. So Adam and Eve were bound together, covenanted in marriage, and we might also say that they dwelled in God's place as God's people. Now when we get to the New Testament, we're going to see the masculine disposition for responsibility formalized into leadership in the most covenantal of contexts, marriage and in God's people, the church. Okay, Marriage and in God's people, the church. The church. A husband is called to lead his family, to lead his wife, and male elders are called to exercise authority in the local church. That's where this pattern of general responsibility and authority becomes prescriptive. So men are not in authority over women in general. Men are in a position of authority in their homes and in the churches. And then generally, I would encourage you that men, we should feel a, a, a responsibility and desire to take leadership for the good of others flourishing in all sorts of contexts, okay? So this does work itself out. But at the same time, well, well, here you go. What do you know? It's right here in my notes. <laughs> but at the same time, we shouldn't be surprised if men in other contexts and in other spheres still feel a sense of proclivity towards being responsible for the good of others even if that sense of responsibility isn't formalized into a leadership role. So single men in the church should feel a brotherly sense of responsibility to provide for and protect their sisters and brothers in Christ. In the workplace, godly men welcome our sense of responsibility to care for the needs of others, whether men or women, whether employees or bosses. We just pause. Any questions so far on that aspect of things? We just talked through patterns of responsibility and we noted some more things from Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. Any questions on that? Kind of getting at responsibility, kind of getting at authority. Renee? Yeah, it might be it might come across as chauvinistic, but it's it's a biblical impulse. Yeah.
Yes. Yeah, I think that's correct. I think that that's correct. I think that he abdicated his authority. He did not uh, protect and he did not uh, assert himself in that situation when he should have. He was with her. That's how I understand that. I, I think the language is, is pretty clear that he was there. Um, and this goes back to, right, that we see two distortions of biblical manhood. We see two broad distortions of it. One is going to be uh, an inclination to be uh, over-authoritative or abusive. The other, on the other side of the, the thing, is to be passive. And so you see, you know, you can see one of those two big uh, errors on either side, and men are going to be given towards one or the other, towards being overly authoritarian, abusive, jerks, or just passive and lay down and Oh gosh, I just don't want to hear it, so I'm not going to say anything. We're just not going to put. I'm just, I'm just going to put up with this. So Adam was being passive there. Yes. That feels like a really big question, but I, I'd say that the, the first big stab at it that I would take is honestly the same answer that I gave to just a young man who, how can a young man who's not married um, pursue biblical manhood? I would say that the, the most wonderful thing that a father could do is to love Christ himself, love Christ, like love him, pursue holiness, pursue godliness, love his wife, be faithful to his wife. Be faithful in his job and then serve his butt off uh, for the local church. Like That's just like teaching biblical manhood all over the place. So if the husband just steps into biblical manhood himself, he models it for his son, which is so much more valuable than just talking about it with his son. Now, of course, he should have conversations with his son, right? But I'm just saying if you just model it, I want to love Jesus. I want to love your mom. Uh, I want to love the church, and I want to be faithful at my job. It's not always easy. Don't even always like it. In fact, sometimes it stinks, but this is what God's given to me, and I'm going to be faithful, and God is good, and oh, praise God, kids, that God's given us this job that can feed our families and this church where we can serve and be served. Oh, praise God. You're just teaching your kids biblical manhood right there. Yes, Kristen? Yeah. 
Yeah, good. Yeah, thanks, son. Yes, Brad? Isaiah? Yes, yes? Well, that's a great question. Brad, do you have to feel these types of questions all the time? <laughs> well, I think that his, his, immediately his family should be taking care of his family. So if he has a brother, right, or uncles or moms or dads, they have the first responsibility to embrace as much of that uh, to embrace, embrace the primary responsibility of that. And then that's also why God's given us the blessing of a local church, that the local church should come alongside too and try to do the best to get the mommy whose dad has passed away to help the mommy get set up in normal life as best as she could. That's what I'd say, buddy. Yeah, I mean, you think it's all, it all partly depends on, you know, the age of the kids and all that stuff, but if, certainly if there's a son who's 15, 16 years old, then he would need to embrace more of that responsibility towards, the, for the flourishing of that family, yeah. Is there another question, another hand up there? Sarah? Yeah. So I think try to cultivate your relationship with your husband and have the best relationship possible with your husband. So I'm assuming you're envisioning a situation where the husband and wife are together and then the wife comes to Christ and the husband's outside of Christ. Is that like, could we just say that for example? So I think in that scenario, it would be very helpful for the wife to just do her absolute dead to right best, dead to rights best to be a, a, a wonderful and loving wife and support her husband and um, enjoy her husband and respect her husband um, and, uh, and to just live with her husband like she normally would, but also to be honest and have frank conversations with him that now things have changed and she does have an allegiance even greater than to him. I think she should actually say these things. Um, that she, Her allegiance first and foremost is to her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if she is just being a kind and good wife, uh, that is going to have a very positive impact. And even if he has no interest whatsoever, and even if he's quite sour and dour, for the most part, he's not going to just totally oppose her in that way. Because she's, uh, I have seen multiple instances of wives coming to Christ, and they've just mentioned that their, their marriage is actually they get, they get better only because her ability to handle things is improved because now she's processing it through the lens of faith and scripture. Um, I guess that would be an introductory thought. Yes. 
And she can also still point out, and I know you wouldn't disagree with this, she can also point out the wonderful things that her husband is doing, even if he's not doing very much that's good. If he's going to work every day, you can teach your young men that that is so honorable and that is so good, and daddy's going to work every day, and we're so thankful for daddy. He's a good man for doing that. That's true. He's stepping into biblical manhood, at least in, in a very minimal sense, and that's a good thing. So you can bring honor to, to the husband in that way. Josh. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I remember when I was working at Wells Fargo as a young man, um, I had a female boss, and she was actually a lesbian. And um, we actually got along great. It was a wonderful relationship, but it took a lot of humility. I, was, I, learned, I learned more about humility of just like, she's my boss. I just need to submit to her authority. And um, she was actually quite competent in, in, in her job, so that, that made things, frankly, pretty easy. She was great. So yeah, there's humility that's needed too. Yeah, it does have an authority or a, a dirty context. I don't know. It partly depends on the person. I might just say even in just a real kind of common sense way. I mean, if this person's not a believer at all, a, a real common sense way to put it is just like, listen, there's just there's clear roles in almost every relationship that we have in the universe. So when I go to job, when I go to a job, there's a clear role that, you know, that, that I have in my job. And my boss has a clear role, and my coworker has a clear role, and we understand how we're supposed to relate to one another. And the Bible is basically just saying that in a marriage, we are both equal in dignity, value, and worth, 
but the husband has the role of that he's supposed to be a leading the 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 leading sacrificial servant and the wife is supposed to follow his lead in those things it's not all that different from from just the reality that we see relationships they have defined roles and responsibilities in the world god's just given us defined roles and responsibilities and by the way authority doesn't have to be a bad thing authority can be abused yes but authority is a good thing when authority is exercised well and so God gives an authority structure to marriages and in the home, and it's actually from his hand for our good. That could be a way where you could begin to introduce it. Abby, and then I'm going to conclude us. Okay. Yes. I don't know if this is like a question. Okay. Yeah. I don't know how to read it, but so you're, you're under, yeah, you're under your <laughs> <laughs> What Chris said. Like, I think, think I'm gonna leave that right there. Like not, I don't know, like not everyone's going to get married and I'm like I'm not I'm not gonna be like old and still like Yeah. Well like look, I, I think there's some common sense that should be applied to these things where we take biblical principles and we try to apply wisdom and, and apply the biblical principles you know I mean there are certain things that are just very very clear cut and then we have to just ask God for, for wisdom and biblical thinking as we trace out implications of these things differently um, in different scenarios and circumstances so I think a, a girl who's 22 and in college is very much still underneath the authority of her father uh, I think that a girl who's probably in this day and age 25 and out of college and in her first apartment is not as much under the authority of her father for sure, but probably still a little bit. Does that make sense? Um, but, th I mean, there's squishy boundaries here, but there is a point in which it's like, yeah, you're, I don't know, you're 26, 26. You're, you're, when, you're, when you're on your own, I think it moves towards more of a deference, you know, a respect, a deference. You are a grown woman at that point. You're on your own. You're supporting yourself. So certain Christians would disagree about these things. That would be my general thought on that. Heather? Sure. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. So next week, we're going to look at more texts and find more puzzle pieces to biblical masculinity. But as we close this morning, this evening, excuse me, I want to ask you, what should we do if we have failed at this? Which there is none of us men who have not failed, not, not failed at this. Uh, what should we do if we've neglected or abused the callings that God has given us? 
Some men here may need to repent of ways that they've been passive or lazy in the work God has given us to do. Others may need to confess how we failed to honor women or wronged or objectified or abused women. God knows all. He's going to deal justly with all men who don't forsake their sin. Some women may ask where they can turn when the men in their life have let them down or have been a monstrous picture of masculinity, either in an abusive sense or a passive sense, and not a biblical example of masculinity. All of us, whatever our sin, whatever our shame, however we've been sinned against, all of us can have hope this evening because we need to trust in, you know it, the perfect man, Jesus Christ. So the first Adam served himself, and in doing so, he failed to provide and protect The greater Adam, the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus, gave of himself to protect and provide for us eternally. So the first Adam was cursed for eating from a tree, but the greater Adam was cursed in our place by hanging on a tree. The first Adam let sin, the first Adam's sin led to a curse on the ground. The greater Adam was buried in the ground and then rose from death to undo the curse of creation and to give us resurrection life. So Jesus is the faithful bridegroom who always loves, always nurtures, always cares for his bride, and our hope is in him, both for our eternal life and for our ability men and encouragement men to continue to pick up the mantle of manhood and just keep doing the best we can and repent when we need to repent, whether it's of, you know, passivity or arrogance and abusiveness, whatever it may be. Jesus is our hope to repent of those things, to pursue holiness, to protect, to provide, to love, to care, to be faithful in the realms that God has given us. Jesus is our hope. So... He's our hope for forgiveness. He's also our example. And what an encouraging and wonderful Savior he is that he doesn't call us to beat ourselves up six ways to Sunday, um, but to just repent, to believe, and then to be encouraged. uh, The the next morning that that his mercies are new every morning and we we can put on our pants one leg at a time and just do our best and know that God's pleased with that because he knows that we're made of the dust and he knows that we're weak. So God's a merciful God, and he's calling us to image him in the way we live out our manhood. So let me just pray for us. Lord, thank you for these men and women. Please help us, Father, to continue to increasingly understand and live out uh, your good design that you have for us as men and women in the church, in our families, in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.